We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shabbat shalom. Uh, I mentioned a few moments ago that uh, I wanted to offer a different translation, a different interpretation of the word Pesach, uh, and I'm going to do that. Uh, I know you've been sitting on the edges of your seat waiting for that, uh, but before I launch into uh, the alternate interpret- interpretation, which I actually think perhaps is the more accurate one, I need to take a step back for a second. Often, the Torah, which even if we are not Torah scholars, we uh, are familiar with through the process of living Jewish lives and participating in Jewish rituals and Jewish holidays, uh, the familiarity we have with the stories often inhibits our ability to interpret them in the way that they were intended. So what I mean by that is that for my entire life, and probably for yours too, we've been taught that, uh, that we celebrate this holiday called Pesach, which in English we call... Passover, because Pesach, of course, means Passover. Pesach refers to God, Pesach, passing over the houses of the Israelites uh, in the process of uh, smiting all of the firstborn Egyptians, Egyptian humans as well as animals. And that's how we generally understand what the word Pesach means through that prism of passing over. But what if that's not at all what the term is supposed to mean? I can't, so what helps sometimes is approaching the Torah with a fresh set of eyes. In other words, imagining that I don't have those Jewish experiences that I've had. I haven't had the day school education that I had or religious school or or whatever. I've never celebrated this holiday before. I don't know what it's all about. And I've never even read the book of the Exodus. So I'm going to go look at the book of Exodus and just kind of see what it's talking about and see what it means. And so you get to chapter 12 of Exodus where it describes the ritual that the children of Israel are supposed to undertake before the 10th plague and before the Exodus. And here's what it says. I'm just going to start with English, okay? Um, So... Speak to the whole community of Israel and say that on the tenth of the month, each of them shall take a lamb to a family, a lamb to a household. But if the household is too small for a lamb, let him share one with a neighbor who dwells nearby. In proportion to the number of persons, you shall contribute for the lamb according to what each household will eat. Are you with me so far? Right. On the tenth day of this month, you take a lamb, uh, and uh, if there aren't enough people in your house to be able to eat a whole lamb, you are going to share with a neighbor's house, and you'll divvy up the lamb uh, in terms of how much you pay for it, and then how much you eat uh, uh, of it. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a yearling male. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. 
You shall keep watch over it until the fourteenth day of this month, and all the assembled congregation of the Israelites shall slaughter it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they are to eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night. They shall eat it roasted over the fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. That sounds familiar, except for the lamb thing. If you come to my house, you get lamb. Uh, Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in any way with water, but roasted, head, legs, and entrails all over the fire. You shall not leave any of it over until morning. If any of it is left until morning, you shall burn it. This is how you shall eat it. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it hurriedly. Okay, this is where I want to get into the Hebrew. You shall eat it hurriedly. Pesach hu ladonai. It is a Pesach for God. Now this comes before any of the story of the tenth plague. So it's already called a Pesach before we hear anything about God Pesaching over the houses. That's strange, isn't it? You would think that you would get the story first, and then it would say, in commemoration of this experience, we have what's called a Pesach offering in name of, in recognition or remembrance of what God did for us. But that's not what it says. It says, Pesach Ladonai first, and then, Va'avarti be'eretz Mitzrayim ba'layla hazeh. I will pass through the, uh, uh, that night I will go through the land of Egypt. And I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. The Ad even animals. And all of the gods of Egypt I will mete out punishments upon. Aniadonai, I the Lord. And the blood on the houses where you are staying shall be a sign for you. And I will see the blood, and I will Pesach over you. So that no plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So then we get this notion of God Pesaching over, over the children of Israel. But note the order. The order is, first we have a Pesach Ladonai, and then God is Pesaching over the houses. So the Pesaching over the houses, sorry for using that term, but I don't want to translate it yet. The Pesaching over the houses, or Pesaching over the Israelites, actually saying over the houses sort of uh, uh, gives away the original interpretation. Pesaching over the Israelites is a result of the Pesach offering, not the cause of the Pesach offering. So then we might ask, okay, well then what does the Pesach offering mean? What is a Pesach offering? Clearly, the author of this story presumed that the reader of the story would be familiar with such a thing as a Pesach offering without even having the story connecting that to, uh, uh, to the offering itself. Everybody following what I'm saying? If they start out by saying, you're going to give this Pesach offering to God, but they haven't told us yet anything about the origin of that, the author is presuming that we know already what Pesach means, what a Pesach is. And it turns out that ancient readers of this story would have known precisely what a Pesach is. And it had nothing to do with the Pesaching over the Israelites until it became connected in this story. 
So the term Pesach in ancient Hebrew can mean one of three things. One, which I said to Sarah and Bram before, is protection. Now that's a good possible explanation of what's going on here, that you give this offering of uh, inviting God's protection, and as a response, God protects the Israelites from the 10th plague. I think that's plausible. That's not what I'm ultimately going to say, but I think that's a plausible read. The one that we're familiar with, Pesach, can mean skipping over or jumping over something. So birds, Pesach, uh, on things in the book of Kings. Uh, uh, Elijah asks the children, uh, asks the Israelites, how long are you going to be Pesaching over two branches? Or either you're going to worship God or you're going to worship Baal, but you can't do both at the same time. So we have that terminology too, although that's a later etymology of uh, Pesach than the authorship of this story, according to uh, scholars of ancient text. So then there's the third possibility. The third possibility is that Pesach means compassion. That Pesach means compassion, and it turns out that more often than not, when Pesach, that root is used elsewhere in the Bible, that's what it means. And when it's used in the context of a sacrifice, that's what it means. It means you are offering this Pesach to God. You are offering this sacrifice, inviting compassion. Now, that is a common trope in biblical literature. Sacrifices are meant to arouse a response from the divine or from the deity, if you're looking at non-Israelite cultures, right? whatever the deity is, you would offer a sacrifice because it's meant to arouse some kind of response from God. We have that throughout Leviticus. You offer a sacrifice and it's reach nichoach ladonai. It's a pleasing smell to God. You offer a sacrifice, a chatat, right? A, a, a sin offering or purification offering and God forgives your sin for doing that. You offer an asham, a guilt offering, right? And your guilt is assuaged through offering that offering. You offer a zevach shamim, a peace offering to God, and that's supposed to arouse the response of God making harmony with you, making peace with you, right? So if when we have, when we encounter that phraseology, a Pesach ladonai, right, like an olah ladonai, an asham ladonai, a mincha ladonai, that phraseology means that the offering that we're offering is meant to arouse a kind of response from God. And in this context, the ancient readers would have known that a Pesach is something that you offer to arouse God's compassion. That helps, I think, explain why it has to be a lamb. Because a lamb is an innocent creature. A young, a yearling lamb, without blemish, has no guilt, has no malice, eats grass, drinks water, has no ill design. We relate to lambs, our ancient ancestors would have related to lambs in that context of compassion. Our ancient ancestors were shepherds. And if we know anything about shepherds, it's through the song, Tender Shepherd. They are tender to their sheep because sheep are in some senses helpless. Lambs, these little lambs are in some senses helpless. And so when we think about lambs, we have our compassion instinct aroused. Our ancestors for sure who were shepherds would have had their compassion instincts aroused. Lamb is associated with taking pity on the vulnerable. 
caring for the weak, protecting the innocent. One of my favorite midrashim, one of my favorite uh, rabbinic explanations in the Exodus story, tries to ask, why is it that God chooses Moses to lead the Israelites? Why is it that God chooses Moses to lead the Israelites? The moment where, we, where Moses encounters God in the story, in Exodus chapter 3, what's Moses doing? Anybody know? Sarah? He's tending, not to his sheep, to the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. He is tending to sheep. And then he, fall, he encounters the burning bush. So the Midrash comes in kind of in between those two verses and says, what is he doing with the sheep that leads him to encounter the burning bush? And it imagines, and some of you have heard me tell this Midrash before, it imagines that one of the sheep wandered off. The littlest one of the flock wandered off. And he finds it on a mountainside drinking out of a little puddle of water. If you've seen The Prince of Egypt, the animated movie, they have depicted that scene as the cause of Moses encountering the burning bush. Moses follows this sheep and sees that it's drinking water and says, oh, I didn't realize you were thirsty. Had I known, I would have carried you myself and taken you to water. He lets the sheep finish drinking the water. He puts the sheep on his shoulders, the lamb on his shoulders, and he begins to carry it out. And in that moment, the Midrash says, God says, if this is how he tends the sheep of a human being, by my life, he is able to tend to my flock, to the children of Israel. God relates to the children of Israel as God's flock. This notion of lamb is connected to the notion that this offering, this Pesach, is about compassion. And so when it says, that God will Pesach over them, perhaps it doesn't mean God will skip over them or protect them, although those are plausible interpretations of that phrase, Pesach Alechem. It could also mean, I will have compassion for them. Now think about what that might mean. If instead of referring to this holiday as Passover, we refer to this holiday as compassion. What would it mean to refer to this holiday not as the day in which God's exact justice on the Egyptians came to pass, but rather focusing as this is the day in which we commemorate God's compassion being aroused for the subjugated and oppressed Jewish people. And then think about what we do at the Seder. Think about how the children of Israel here are instructed to observe this rite. With your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it hurriedly. It's talking to people not only in the Exodus, but after the Exodus. We embody and inhabit the spirit of our enslaved ancestors in the Seder. The Seder tells us, Each and every generation, in each and every generation, a person is obligated to see him or herself as if he or she personally left Egypt. The rituals of the Seder the purpose, in some senses, of the Seder is to inspire in us the same kind of compassion 
that we inspired in God in this first exodus. Because we are to remember what it is like to be a slave. We are to remember what it is like to be a persecuted innocent. We are to remember what it's like to be an oppressed people. And through doing that, as the Torah tells us, in one form or another, I actually used to think it was 26 times. Richard Elliott Friedman, a biblical scholar, points out that it's 52 times. 52 times in the Hebrew Bible, we are told some version of, you should know the heart of the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Richard Elliott Friedman goes even further to say, in his incredible new book called uh, The Exodus, which I commend to you, just came out. He has an incredible argument about the historicity of the Exodus, although it's not like you imagine. But what he says is that there are only 52 instances in ancient literature of the notion that there should be special protection for the stranger, for the migrant, for the vulnerable. And all 52 instances are in the Hebrew Bible. Think about that for a second. What is being described in the book of Exodus is nothing short of a revolution in human thought. A revolution that those who are oppressed, vulnerable, marginalized, weak, deserve compassion, deserve special protection. And we are to, at this time of the year, inhabit their heart and their mind. We are to know them so that we, too, act in that way. Professor Friedman argues in his book that the notion, the celebrated notion in the book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, is not only talking about Jewish neighbors, it's talking about all neighbors. He says that this is an idea that is brought to the Jewish people from the Exodus. He draws a straight line in in a compelling critical way and historical way from the Exodus experience, both in history, in literature, in archaeology, from that experience to the holiness code and other codes of law in the Bible that say you should know the heart of the stranger, you should protect the stranger, you should have the same law for you and the stranger because you know the heart of the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Passover is not Passover. Passover is a holiday about compassion. It is built in to the very first observance of the festival that our ancestors observed in Egypt. It is carried through in history and inscribed into our tradition by those who experienced the Exodus and their descendants as a moral imperative incumbent upon them and upon all subsequent generations. We're told here in Exodus chapter 12, this is chukat olam l'dorotechem, an eternal law for all of us. As we enter this holiday, let us think not about how God skipped over our houses, but rather about how we inspired God's compassion upon us And as an act of remembrance, we are called to be inspired to be compassionate for others as well.